Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Welcome back. It's time for part two of the Fast Track Controversy. And this week, I'm going to be delving deep into the Fast Track Pilot Study to give everybody a really nice plain English version of what happened in the practice run of the Fast Track Trial. In the meantime, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who keeps on listening and giving me feedback about the podcast. Thanks for all your messages of support. Thanks for your messages with ideas and sharing your stories of pushing back against diet culture because it's so inspiring for me to hear about what you guys are doing, to stand up, to push back, to say no, to ask questions because this is what it's all about. And if you're loving the podcast, please go and rate and review with a nice five star at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, wherever you're subscribing. Because the more people that hear this message, the more likely it is that we continue to push back and fight and and change diet culture, which, um, my God, doesn't it need it? So if you're also looking for a free resource about this whole area of weight science, then look no further than the free ebook, Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss Is Bullshit. This was written by me and the fabulous Fiona Willer, who's an advanced accredited dietitian and host of her own wonderful podcast, Unpacking Weight Science. And I I strongly recommend if you haven't already subscribed to that podcast, please do, because she will make you 50% smarter just by listening to her. So Fiona and I wrote this ebook, which essentially we are breaking down the top 10 Uh, myths that we're being given by diet culture about weight loss, about the relationship between weight and health. And we're really uh, delving into the research and giving you the data. Because the problem with diet culture is that we get a lot of these sound bites. We get a lot of these messages that quote unquote, everyone knows. But when you dig under to actually what we know from science, the picture is much more complicated, much more interesting. And different to what we're being told. And it's just so important that uh, with so many people at the moment crippled with eating disorders, so many people at the moment worried about their health, so many people hating their bodies and wanting to lose weight. It's really important to figure out that if what you believe about your body or your weight or your health, we better make sure that that's true, right? Because what if some of the stuff you're being told isn't true? And what if you could change your relationship with your body and your health without focusing on weight all the time? So you can find this incredible ebook. As I said, it's totally free. You can find it at untrapped.com.au and it will pop up as a downloadable PDF. Or you can go to my Instagram, untrapped underscore au and click on the link in the bio to the ebook and find it there. So without further ado, I'm going to dive straight into today's episode. I'm going to start this, this week's episode by really going into the fast track pilot study, which has just been published. I really want 
to get out there in the world a plain English version of what actually happened in this study and um, particularly important for any parents or teenagers invited or participating in this trial to understand very clearly what the likelihood is of um, weight change and also health markers and really importantly changes in relationship to food and eating disorder markers. So this fast track pilot study is is really being touted as successful and as the basis or the foundation for the fast track trial which is currently recruiting and going ahead. So let's look at what actually happened. In the Age newspaper uh, a quote from uh, Louise Bauer said While the trial is the first of its kind, Professor Bauer said it had come off the back of a successful pilot program in which 25 teenagers followed a similar model and saw benefits in their cholesterol, blood pressure, liver and heart function. And I was interested when I read that because I was at the same time reading through the article itself and I was noticing that um, the results were actually quite different to what that article was saying. I mean, essentially, the pilot really showed no change in cholesterol, no change in blood pressure, no change in liver, and only one heart measure was changed. So, I mean, we're starting off this whole exercise by seeing something quoted in the media that's really different to what happened in the study itself. So, and this is why it's just so important to, I guess, not believe what you read, but to go back to the source and and have a look. But this is another of my gripes because going and reading a scientific study, it should be easy, but it's actually not. Even if you have degrees and training at the university level on how to read a scientific paper, it can still be quite difficult to understand what has happened and how um, data is being presented. So if it's hard enough even for scientifically trained people, how hard would it be if you're just a parent of someone in a larger body who is being recruited for this trial? So the aim for me here today talking about this study is I want to get it down as plain and simple as possible to communicate to people and to teenagers about this is what's likely to happen to you. So this is my mission to make this scientific speak more understandable to humans. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to be going bit by bit through this study and sharing with you what it all means. So the fast track pilot study has just been published, like I said, in the Journal of Nutrition. And the article is called Intermittent Energy Restriction is a Feasible, Effective and Acceptable Intervention to Treat Adolescents with Obesity. Doesn't that sound impressive and positive just in the title? But let's dig into it and see what they actually did and what they actually found to see if it matches that very optimistic sounding title. Okay, so this pilot study was done at the Westmead Children's Hospital and there were 45 teenagers who were approached to do it and 30 of them said, okay, we will do it. So these 30 kids were recruited straight out of the hospital-based childhood obesity clinic that's out there. They were aged in between 12 to 17 years old, and there were 25 girls and only five boys. The average age of the kids was about 15, and 
all of them were supposed to have an equivalent BMI or body weight index of 30 and above. But when you look at the data, it actually says they ranged from a BMI of 27.7 up to 52. So at least one of these kids was actually below the weight threshold that the study was supposed to be aiming at. Of the kids, so who were these kids? We know that three of them were from Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander background. We know that six of them were born overseas. And we don't know how many of the kids that it said were born in Australia, how many of those were from non-English speaking background families because no data was given on that. So we don't have a great idea of how able these people were, the parents in particular, to understand what was happening. Okay, so what they actually did in this pilot was pretty similar to what they're planning in the fast track trial in terms of restriction. So for 12 weeks, each participant was given a very low energy diet three days a week. So I'm talking five to 600 calories a day, very, very low. Optifast was involved and apparently um, the study paid for the kids' food on those starvation days for the first nine weeks. But, you know, that's not going to be a lot of food, let's face it, and it's going to be pretty much mostly Optifast. The kids were then told to eat accordingly to the national dietary guidelines for the other four days of the week. They met with a dietitian during this period, this 12-week period. There were no psychologists involved in this intervention. For the weeks 13 to 26, so altogether it was a six-month study, So, but they starved them for 12 weeks. And then from weeks 13 to 26, the kids were invited to keep on starving with a three-day-a-week plan, or they could go to two days a week or one day a week, or they could even change to constant calorie restriction from 12 to 26 weeks. They were primarily interested in weight change at 12 weeks and then secondarily interested in weight change at 26 weeks. And they also did a range of measures, physiological measures and cardiometabolic measures to see what happened to health markers. And they also did some testing on eating disorder symptoms. So let's have a look at what happened to these kids. Before we delve into what happened to those kids, I should say that at the beginning of this study, they said that 28 of the kids were categorised as having insulin resistance. So what happened to them? Well, pretty quickly in the first eight weeks, seven participants pulled out of the study. So that out of 30 kids, that's quite a lot of kids saying, no, thank you. And the study did say that those seven kids that pulled out tended to be the heavier kids. So kids in larger bodies pulled out pretty damn quickly and we didn't hear from them ever again. I should also add that the paper, it's weird, it noted that the kids were all given a Fitbit at the beginning. But then we like literally never hear about that again. So a Fitbit was given to the kids, but we don't know why and we never hear about it again. So let's look at what happened. Um, As usual, the main thing these researchers are interested in is weight change. And at 12 weeks and at 26 weeks, the study does report on weight change. But 
you know what, it's actually quite difficult to figure out what that actually means, which sounds weird, but is quite a common problem in weight science research, particularly in adolescents or in children. So in, in weight science articles, you will see weight change being reported in a bewildering number of ways. You can see, I mean, the easiest is to, to see average weight loss, but often we'll see weight changes being reported as BMI change or Z-score change or percentage of excess weight loss change. And in this study, they are talking about something which is called BMI at the 95th percentile change. So that is a very complicated statistic to understand. And I, even though I have all of these university level degrees in which I studied statistics, I needed to go over and over this until in my head it became clear. So at this point, I'm going to invoke the help of my amazing friend, Fiona Willer, who is a statistical queen. And I'm gonna read from her a direct quote about what this BMI 95th percentile is all about and how to understand it. So thank you, Fiona Willer. Okay, so what does BMI at the 95th percentile mean? Okay, what it means is they look up what the BMI for that child's sex and height would be at the 95th percentile. That means that in the information that they based these growth charts on originally, 95% of kids of that sex and height had a BMI that was lower than that. And then they calculate this individual kid's actual BMI. And so the percentage of the 95th percentile is the kid's actual BMI divided by the 95th percentile BMI multiplied by 100 to make it a percentage. So if a kid's BMI is 20% higher than the 95th percentile BMI, it'll be expressed as 120% of the 95th percentile. Now, guys, I'm really aware that what I started off saying today is that I wanted to do this in plain English and I'm painfully acutely aware that what I just said might have lost many of you because it still loses me. But I guess all I'm saying is that this is a very hard way of reporting weight change, isn't it? So when you read the article where it sort of says, look, after 12 and then 26 weeks, BMI at the 95th percentile was reduced then it looks like it worked, didn't it? It looks like uh, this was a really effective intervention at reducing weight, but we don't really know what it means because we can't clearly get our heads around what actually happened and what was likely to happen to those kids' weight during this point of time. So by an amazing coincidence, I managed to stumble across a paper that was presented by the author when she went to a conference while this was all going on. And beautifully, she presented the weight loss data in plain English at this conference. So I'm going to tell you about it. What she said, so at this conference, she had outcome data, which means she had complete data on uh, 19 out of the 21 kids who ended up finishing the trial. So we've got pretty complete data. We, we have a pretty complete idea of, of what happened. And she says, Body weight was reduced at 12 weeks and that had an average reduction in weight of three and a half kilos. So at 12 weeks, the kids lost on average three and a half kilos. But by 26 weeks, the kids had put weight back on. So they had regained an average of 1.4 kilos, meaning that the uh, entire weight loss average number for the 19 kids was just two kilos. 
at six months. Now, that's not a lot, is it? Especially after going to all of that effort of starving yourself for three days a week, all in the name of, I guess, weight loss for the first 12 weeks, which then came creeping back. I can't stress to you enough how common this is because we see this result over and over again in weight science research. And this is what happens to the vast majority of people who do go on a weight loss diet. We can lose weight in the short term, but very quickly our body recognizes what's going on, starts up a whole range of metabolic responses to slow down the weight loss and to get it back. And then we start to regain the weight. This is not a personal problem. This is not a failure of willpower. This is simply our bodies recognizing starvation and protecting us from it. So it's really interesting, isn't it, to see the difference between when someone stands up at a conference and gives you the raw data or like the actual kilogram weight changes and what happens when we do some statistical wizardry with the BMI 95th percentile and make it look the bomb. But there's another interesting chapter to this story because there's a little table in the published paper called Figure 3, which is an actual kind of, it's a graph of what happened to each individual participant at 12 weeks and 26 weeks, where they have little diamonds to represent changes in BMI 95th percentile points. Um, So you can kind of get a visual representation of what happened to each kid. And you can see on this diagram that one kid in particular at 12 weeks and 26 weeks has really lost a lot of weight. Like most of the kids really didn't, but one kid really, really lost a lot of weight. And if, if, you know, I was on that trial and I was looking at that, my anorexia alarm bells will be going off. And also it's clear that this kid this, I guess what we call them are statistical outliers. So a kid who, whose body really behaved differently to the other kids in the trial. Obviously, this kid hadn't, was not included in the conference paper. But once it's included in this published paper, it's changed the outcome. So I really think that what's happened in between that presentation paper where the author admitted that no weight changes were really significant by 26 weeks. But then they found this outlier, added it to the data, and boom, we have statistically significant weight loss. So this is why it's important to read papers, everybody, because when you read them, you can understand the story of what's happened here. This pilot study, this fasting regime, really doesn't work. (laughs) But if you get an outlier and include it in the data, and then you do your wizardry and report it in a way that no one can understand, then it's going to look like it works. Another interesting thing you can see from looking at the figure in the published paper is that by 26 weeks, four or five of the kids had actually gained weight above where they started. And that's not discussed in the paper at all. And I think it kind of should have been. Because if you've got nearly a quarter of your sample that are putting weight back on, overshooting where they started from after 26 weeks of starvation, I think that should be discussed, but it really hasn't been raised. There are a couple of other really concerning aspects that are not discussed in the paper. In the table, you can see um, height 
what happens to the kids' heights. So in a study like this, when restriction is so severe, you've really got to keep an eye on them and make sure that they're still growing because adolescents are going through growth spurts, right? Which means they're supposed to get taller and get heavier. But in between uh, 12 and 26 weeks, the kids actually got shorter. So a significant result was found, a significant change in their height. So the kids got shorter and that's a real concern because it's an indication that they're falling off their growth curve because of this restriction. Something that was not discussed at all uh, was any impact on the girls' menstrual cycles. Given that the majority of the sample were female, this is concerning. And there was no discussion about the metabolic impact on the teenagers' growing bodies of this kind of starvation. Given that we did see overshoots, so kids gaining more weight from, from chronic starvation, that's an indication of metabolic impact. So what I mean by metabolic impact is that when we go on a diet and our bodies start to notice that it's sort of starving, our metabolism slows down and we start to operate like in starvation mode. And there's ways of picking that up. So we can measure for metabolic changes, but that was not measured in this study. So what happened to their health? <laughs> Did that improve? Well, 28 of the 30 kids were reported to be insulin resistant when the experiment started. And that's not reported again because no changes happened after the six months. So there was no change in insulin resistance. There was no change in cholesterol. There was no change in blood pressure. There were some small changes in plasma triglycerides, but those were normal to begin with. So we didn't really need to reduce them. And as I said, no changes in insulin resistance happened either. They did lots and lots of complicated and expensive heart function measures. And they did nine of them. And after six months, only one of them had changed, which is arterial wall thickness. So it's a really very little change in cardiometabolic factors. And not all of the kids were measured either. So they didn't have complete data. So what we know so far is that six months of intermittent starving for these kids led to a tiny amount of weight loss and then weight regain and some overshoot, height shrinkage, no major health improvements. What about psychologically? What happened to these kids in terms of eating disorder risk, which is something I'm very concerned about? They did do one self-report questionnaire, which is just 20 items. So it's not, it, this is not a comprehensive eating disorder risk instrument by any stretch of the imagination. But what it did find is dietary restraint scores were significantly increased at six months. So dietary restraint is, it's like a warning sign for development of an eating disorder so kids who are high in dietary restraint are at high risk of developing an eating disorder. And what we see is that that is elevated over the course of the experiment. The paper says, it notes that dietary restraint was increased, but it doesn't discuss it at all. It's like it's not important. And instead, it reports improvements in emotional eating or eating for external reasons. Two points there. Neither well, Emotional eating is not an eating disorder symptom. Neither is eating for external reasons. And also those scores were not unusual to begin with. So the fact that they got lower really didn't solve any problems. In fact, in my opinion, it just reflects that the kids weren't allowed to eat as much. That's it. 
they did do a quality of life measure and they did seven measured areas of quality of life. And at six months, only two of those were improved. And interestingly, the results showed that if kids did show improvement on quality of life scores, that was directly related to how much weight they'd lost. And that concerns me because what that tells us if, is they're not really feeling better about themselves for any other reason than because they've lost a lot of weight. And we know that the vast majority of these kids are going to put that weight back on. So what have we really done here? We've just reinforced the idea that our self-worth is based on our weight. And you've kind of sentenced the kids to feeling bad about themselves pretty soon when the weight comes back on. So this is the upshot of um, this pilot study, right? Not a lot of weight loss, evidence of weight regain, no health markers were significantly improved. There was evidence of eating disorder, dietary restraint increasing. But it's not, it's just not a great outcome, is it? <laughs> and yet the um, conclusion is really quite astonishingly positive. They conclude that intermittent energy restriction is an effective dietary intervention, which can lead to reductions in BMI and cardiometabolic risk. I'm sorry, but that does not match what the data is actually saying. You know, it really bothers me because this pilot study that's just been published is being used to justify the fast track trial. And parents are really not being informed about what happened in the pilot study. There's no plain English version out there that says, well, look, most kids lost three and a half kilos, put it back on again. They didn't really get any healthier. This needs to be communicated to parents and teenagers as well as the uh, dietary restraint aspect. And the fact that this is not being told to parents or teenagers is unacceptable, in my opinion. So I have for you now a special treat, which is a wonderful interview that I did with Ruth Leach. She is an eating disorder survivor. Her story is amazing. Her entire family suffered with eating disorder thanks to her dad's obsession with fasting. And her story is one of survival and it's an incredible one, as is her just incredible tenacity because she organised a really detailed and incredible complaint that was co-signed by 35 health professionals and sent into the Fast Track Ethics Committee. So Ruth and I are here and we're discussing all kinds of stuff about the Fast Track trial and about the pilot study and about everything that's worrying us. And I think it's a very important conversation that needs to be heard by everyone. I hope that you guys have a good understanding now of the pilot study and when you hear the researchers talking about how this intervention was really, really good, you know what that means. <laughs> Not that great, really. And without further ado, I'm going to give you me and Ruth. Ruth Leach, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us on the show today. Really good to be here. So tell me a little bit about you and how you found out about the Fast Track trial. Okay, so my history is I had a very long-term eating disorder. I started off as a small child with what would now be termed AFID. This is back in the 60s, so we didn't have those kind of classifications back then for sure. I was just a very fussy eater, and I got into a lot of trouble for it from my parents. But my dad was eating disordered, and when I was nine, he went under a kind of a wacky diet to prevent cancer. We would now call that orthorexic. And yeah. fasting as a family. Mm. 
I can't tell you about weight loss for myself. My sister, who was three years older than me, so she was 12 when we started fasting, she didn't grow beyond the age of 12 and she didn't get a period until she was 17. Oh, my God. She's about eight inches shorter than me. Developed a child form of anorexia around that time and then moved on to having bulimia nervosa for nine years until I was 20. Probably the massive amounts of food I consumed during the years of bulimia nervosa meant that I was able to grow because I was taking enough nourishment during those very hungry times. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people talk about it, about binging as being a very negative thing. Um, mm. But I think that uh, Gwyneth Olwyn, whose work I follow, her definition of this as extreme hunger and the body actually needing to recalibrate and keep taking energy in for itself um, really makes sense because for sure I would say that I managed to get as tall as I am. I'm five, nine and a half because I was actually able to eat during that period of time. After 20, I would, would have said once that I was recovered. But um, in my early 50s, around the time my dad died, and he died because primarily because he had metastatic prostate cancer. He was fasting, still trying to do the same thing. He just continued. He fasted on and off most of his life. And wow. God. That's why the study affected me so very much because what I saw with dad was he did all of the right things, but he never, he never ended up in a small body and he sure as hell didn't end up in a, in a healthy state mentally or physically. Well, then he got cancer as well, which is the whole point supposedly yeah. of the diet. Yeah. But in the last year of his life, he was hospitalized five times for refeeding syndrome which oh. had a profound effect on his kidneys and um, the last bout of it cost him his life. So he opted for palliative care because he lost the use of his legs. I had just, within the last few months, got a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa for myself. I was 52 at the time and I, began, I had come to understand what dad's eating patterns meant. Yeah. Also my own. And it was like a holy shit moment. Mm. Really severe. And, and other family members who, who have similar, potentially deadly issues. So watching him die, literally standing by his bed, holding his hand through those last few days, I was really conscious that I had a really severe eating disorder and I had to change it or I would end up like dad. Yeah. I had to get out of this pattern. And let's just say I went through <laughs> a few years of hell doing so, but I'm, I'm at the other end of it now. And in the process of that, I got into online forums where people were peer supporting each other, came to understand issues around BMI, came to understand the complete beat up that is the war against obesity and mm. how that's completely unscientific. And it's not based on an understanding of how bodies work at all. Yeah. So much weight bias. Also the money that goes into it, the multi-billion dollar diet industry. And there's a medical yeah. diet industry as well. It's a huge money spinner. Yeah. And one of the reasons it's a money spinner, and this really makes my blood boil, is that uh, we have a built-in mechanism to regain weight if we lose below our set point. That's it. Yeah. And that's been well established through study after study. The theory of set point is actually understood science. We know that. We know there's a set point. Yeah. Our body will maintain it come hell or high water. How it maintains it looks different. That's the thing. So this war is actually a war against the biological realities that bodies mm. rise. 
in this study, it's young people who are being launched into or risk being launched into either an eating disorder yeah. or a lifetime of disordered eating and probably cyclic weight loss and gain. Yeah. And definitely cyclic weight loss and gain. And the health issues that come with that, the thing that the study kind of glazes over is mm. that it's not the weight itself that causes the issue. It is the metabolic impact of repeated dieting that causes the damage. Right, yeah. Someone who's at BMI 35 who's never dieted all of their life and are metabolically healthy is different to a person who has dieted for 20 years and they've suffered metabolic downregulation and they mm. have issues with a lot of their biomarkers and their organ function because of the impact on their body of dieting. So, yeah, that, that was my, my interest in it. And I... I came upon it in one of the groups that I belong to where I do peer-to-peer support of other people who are practicing remission or in recovery and peer-to-peer support of parents of kids worldwide whose whose kids have eating disorders. And there is a theme in people of my age, certainly in older adults, there isn't one of us that have an eating disorder that would say intense weight loss as an adolescent is a good idea because we all did it. Yeah. It's cost us dearly. Mm. Some it's cost their lives. Um, in the last couple of years, there have been around 18 or 19 deaths of people that I know, not personally, but um, referentially. Oh, wow. Yeah. And many, many more of people I don't have any contact with at all, but we just hear about them through the network. And the theme is the same. These kids or adults some of them are adults did exactly what the adolescents in this study are doing because yeah. that study that is the model of anorexia nervosa absolutely and utterly That's, yeah it is the model for it is a template for behaviors associated with that disorder yeah and it's you're right it's completely glossed over and the way the researchers are talking about it as if this is healthy and responsible behavior to be encouraging teenagers it um, yeah your own life experience and the experience of the thousands of people that you're in connection with it's extraordinary you're amazing because you ended up lodging a complaint to the ethics committee that approved the fast track trial and I read your complaint it was sensational because <laughs> that's you know you actually detailed the science that you're talking about here this idea that our, our bodies are heavily defend a set point weight weight loss is only possible in the short term and is always followed by weight regain weight cycling does metabolic damage and cardio metabolic damage you, I mean, you really provided such a detailed complaint. The thing is that weight loss interventions in adolescents have happened before. And mm. I detailed mm. a lot of those studies as well. And, and in fact, one of them mapped out a pathway, a four-stage pathway, which um, someone could develop disordered eating or an eating disorder. And the first step on that pathway was disturbed body image. Yeah, yeah. Self was overweight. And then there was dieting and stigmatization. So that, that already crossed three stages of the four stages. So when the head researcher says there is minimal risk, my question would be then how can you say that 
when there's good, consistent science, and we're not talking about like, this study, the study they based the fast track trial on, as we know, was 30, based on 30 kids, yeah. only either 21 or 19 of whom completed. That's yeah. contentious. You'll discuss that later. So yeah. that's not a huge study. I'm talking the studies that mm-hmm. I quoted in the complaint were thousands of kids and longitudinal. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Not 12 weeks. Considering it's only a short-term study, what happened to them afterwards? They said there was no follow-up. So where are those kids now? I don't know, right? What are, what are they doing? And well, going back to what you mentioned about, um, like the, it talks about the kids in the study, about the kids being on a healthy diet, which is interesting as a scientific term, I thought. Judging, mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because there's a lot of bias in there. What does that actually entail? Mm. And at the same time, they're on Optifast shakes. On what planet is it, is it acceptable to have adolescents on mm. very low calorie weight loss fasting products like Optifast? Yeah, it's pretty gross, isn't it? So uh, at twelve, would I be expecting? Because oh. my, my younger daughter is in sort of the hundred and fifteenth percentile for weight and height. She's very very tall and averagely well proportioned. But if we were only going by her charts, we'd be going, oh no, she has a problem. What am I going to do? Put on Optifast to try and... No, no, we don't. Yeah, we don't want to do this. But, I mean, look, I mean... And, and I, only the, I only looked at the charts. That's what I'd be looking at, not at the actual whole yeah. of the child. That's living. Yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, it's an extreme intervention. and to act, But to actually read in plain English that even with this extreme intervention... You know, on average, your child is probably going to lose around three and a half kilos for a few weeks and then it's going to come back on again. This is not something that the fast-track parents are being told about. And that was one of the um, one of the complaints that I made when I lodged my complaint to the Ethics Committee about parents are not being told about, you know, th- this is not going to be a big weight loss for most of the kids. It's going to be a small weight loss followed by weight regain and an overshoot. Why aren't people being told this? Because that's informed consent. Also, if there's no follow-up, because the um, fast-track trial is only for a year, and we know that, again, from extensive research, that weight loss is maximal at one year. So that's the sweet spot. They've designed that trial very, very well because it's going to give them the best results possible. Of course. I'm being totally cynical about that. Me too, me too. Um, The return of weight plus extra for the majority of people will happen around two to five years. And for some, again, if you do a scatter um, chart, then you're going to have some that radically overshoot in a very short period of time. What do they do? So these Mm. kids have been on the Optifast shakes already. What have they done to try and manage the extra weight that's come back when they go back to normal eating again? What are their behaviours like right now? Yeah, yeah it's what are happens to those outliers. Yeah. Are they still trying to fast? Yeah. They, what are they doing? Because no one's following up on them at all. No, well, no, that's, that's the problem. You know, that's where I think weight science research, we really need to rethink how we're doing it. And, and I literally think because the, the weight science is so strong on, we know that short-term interventions can give us short-term changes and then regain. So I think if we're going to do studies at all anymore in weight loss, then we need to make sure we're following people for like a minimum of five years, like approaching it like it's cancer treatment to really prolong and get that picture of what actually happens to someone following it's this kind of... the eating disorder studies, I think that that information's already there. The Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Oh, 
Yeah, it's been done. It's been established. This is what happens. There's plenty, plenty of research out. There's a plethora of research about what happens to a body that's been starved and then returns to a normal feeding cycle. And kids don't understand this. They don't understand that. And and you, if you said then this is not being pointed out to them, if you acutely diet and lose a large amount of weight, and then you return to your normal eating pattern, you regain all the weight you've lost, and you gain more of it. Mm, mm. Why this? No, well, this is one of the things that, that came from, from our complaint, like my complaint and then your complaint. The, the ethics committee said, okay, we'll meet with some of the eating disorders organisations. They met with Butterfly and ANZ. Out of that, and also I think a bit out of my complaint, they said, okay, we're going to adjust the parent consent forms and we're going to tell them about the risk of eating disorder development and we're going to let the parents know a bit more about the concerns and you know how long ago was that because ever since then the ethics committee have been apparently drawing up this revised consent form it's still not out there and that's unacceptable because people need to know if you're going to go into a weight loss experiment in 2019 you need to know what the science says about what to expect about weight loss and weight regain and what to expect about risk it's not rocket science this is a human right And, you know, I'm really concerned about the length of time it's taking the ethics committee to consider adjusting these consent forms. And do you know what I think? I think if they really wrote down on a piece of paper, your child is likely to lose around three kilos for a few weeks and then put it back on again. And that's going to have a metabolic impact. And um, as they found in the pilot study, the restraint scores on their eating disorder measures might increase. I wouldn't sign my kid into that. Well, restraint of eating is one of the warning signs. So weight loss and restraint of eating and increased exercise, and which, which they really should have tracked in this pilot study, those are three markers, absolutely and utterly flagging, flagging markers or marked flaggers, whatever. <laughs> you can delete, delete that if you like. But they are the points at which when we, um, the groups that I belong to, when we educate parents, or support parents as if your kids had an intense weight loss in a short period of time, go and see your doctor. Or in some cases where treatment is really appalling, so you won't, even kids who've got a BMI of 15 or 14 won't get treatment because they're not considered sick enough, so parents oh, have to go out on their own. That's terrible. And sometimes it's kids whose BMIs are higher than that, but they're still severely eating disordered and they are malnourished. But again, they're being told, no, they're too heavy. There's nothing wrong with them. They could stand to lose a little bit of weight where the parents are saying what they're seeing in terms of dysfunction from their kids at home is completely and utterly overlooked and dismissed. Yeah. Um, But those three things are absolutely and utterly flags. They are. They are. Yeah. And and that's the thing, I think, you know, some of the stuff the fast track researchers have been coming back at us with are things like, well, we're going to track eating disorder development and behaviours. We're going to make sure they're not doing any of that. But But they are. The whole thing is an eating disorder. The whole thing. Exactly. The diary of an anorexic. I'm not kidding. Well, yeah. It could look like I could drag some of the people in my cohort who've had 20 or 30 years of eating disorders, some who've been hospitalised, some who've almost lost their lives. But those, the journals those kids might be eating, uh, keeping of their eating patterns could be lined up alongside those women, primarily women, and matched, and it would be almost identical. All right. Especially the whole business of taking something low-calorie in when you're hungry to try and avoid the 
trying right. to avoid sexual act of eating. So when they say we're going to watch them for development, my, my statement is, um, excuse me, just from the back row here, you've already got them in an eating disorder pattern. That's what you're doing. You've induced eating disorder behavior in these kids. Yeah. You like it or you don't. That is what eating disorders look like. So if, if someone developed an eating disorder, so the neurobiological changes that happen in those who are genetically predisposed to eating disorders, we wouldn't see it because they would be the people who would be rewarding for maintenance. They would be the people who would be rewarding for more restrained eating, less emotional eating. They would be the people who have an increased sense of well-being because that's something that's, that's in the neurobiology of eating disorders. People who restrict and they have that particular gene set they feel really good. They feel great, yeah. Mm. I mean, that for me, that was one of the markers when I identified a problem with myself. It was something that Gwyneth Owen wrote about um, people who don't have eating disorder genes when they diet, they're cranky and hangry and mm. very difficult to live with, but the eating disorder person gets calm, clear-headed and energetic. Yeah, wow. That was me. That was really the clincher for me, and that felt like my walls were tumbling down around me at that point. It was like, oh, oh no, moment. But it was also my father who would say to me after three days of fasting, that's the thing, Ruthie, I've got so much energy. I'm so clear-headed. I can do my Sudokus and I can write. He would get euphoric. Yeah. That's not a normal response. Okay. And it's, it's a, a deadly response. So if they're seeing that in the, the kids who are compliant <laughs> and the ones who are getting the results, they're not recognising it. No, they're, they're actually saying they're using it as evidence to do it to more kids. I understand. How do you get $1.2 million when you do a study, you do a study which is to get kids to lose weight and improve their metabolic or their biomarkers, and the study shows that they didn't across the board or sustain and maintain it and their biomarkers didn't improve no but this is where we get back to regardless of what the data shows we need to conclude with overly optimistic conclusions i mean even even the title of their pilot study is intermittent fasting is a feasible effective and acceptable intervention to treat adolescents with oh so it's ridiculous I know. What it should say is that intermittent fasting leads to temporary small weight loss, weight regain. By weight regain. Yeah, not much change in in secondary markers, and uh, really, there's hints there about eating disorder risk. But and the other thing mm. is, those, those markers shouldn't be secondary. Mm. Mm. They should be the primary markers, not body weight, and that that's the issue here. They're being targeted <laughs> for their body weight. I know, it's gross. It's so gross. And in fact, the wording in that pilot was interesting. So the IER dietary plan may be more effective at the (laughs) reduction short term. It's not. It's not. (laughs) And the other one is um, reduction in certain measurements. And I go back to reduction because they shifted Mm. some point of a percentage. And again, it's the snapshots at any given time. And they're small. Mm. Absolutely. Indicates potential improvement in cardiometabolic risk. So it indicates potential. Mm. I mean, I can look at a cloud, a teeny weeny cloud up in the sky, and I can say, it indicates potential rain. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to rain until there's a lot more cloud. And they're looking at teeny weeny little clouds and go, oh, it's going to (laughs) rain. 
I'm definitely not going to the beach with those researchers. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Oh, thank you so much for coming and talking about all of this with us. And thank you for, like, that complaint that you put in is, I mean, it was astoundingly comprehensive. And um, I'll definitely put it a de-identified version in the show notes so everyone can read about what the concerns were. And I'll put my complaint up there as well. And who knows what's going to happen from this. But, you know, I, I think it's really important to raise awareness. And I hope that parents who are considering putting their kids in this child have listened to this episode. And if you know someone who might be considering putting their kid in, get them to listen to this episode as well, because informed consent is important. And um, I want to finish with a quote. It's from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is literally, you know, some advice on what we should be doing if we're concerned about our teenagers' weight. Discourage dieting and skipping meals. Encourage and support healthy eating. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The, the, I mean, the end note for me is that I belong to, I collectively, probably a group of 7,000 or so people worldwide who are either in eating disorder recovery are supporting someone in eating disorder recovery or they are working in as a, a care provider in eating disorder recovery. And I would say almost unanimously, apart from those who are still steeped in the whole weight loss and socially normative body thing, but they are getting to be more and more a minority, they would say, this is not acceptable. This is not an acceptable method of treatment. And also, what are they treating? They're yeah. treating something that isn't problematic, except... When, if you're looking at it from a biased viewpoint. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, there are better ways. If you want to improve health, there are ways of doing it without risking long-term, long-term health issues and long-term metabolic damage for sure. And yeah. they're proven. They've got thousands and thousands of devotees now as opposed mm. to 21 kids who had this inflicted on them by a bunch of doctors. Yeah, absolutely. Without disclosing what actually might happen to their bodies. Yeah, so important. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you. Wow, what an episode, everyone. Um, it was so lovely to speak with Ruth and so great to go through with all of you the Fast Track pilot study. And I really hope that this episode has increased awareness of just how different the conclusions uh, can be from the actual data. And I hope your critical thinking caps have um, enjoyed it as well. So the last two episodes, this one and last one, really all about the fast track trial and about the protest. And unfortunately, at this point, the fast track trial is still going to go ahead. And still the researchers are not showing any signs of communicating clearly to parents or adolescents the concerns that have been raised in this enormous global protest. And I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has signed the petition to say stop the fast track trial. And if you haven't signed it already, please go and do so. You can find it in the um, in my bio for Instagram, untrapped underscore AU. Click on the link to sign the petition to stop it. We have over 20,000 people and people are still rolling in saying what on earth. If you are wanting to kind of get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, which is Stop the Fast Track Trial. So just search that out and ask to join and I will join you up and you can meet other like-minded 
professionals, survivors, humans who care to, to really continue pushing back and fighting against this. And of course, there's the Fast Track Trial information website, which has gone up, which is fasttracktrial.com.au, in which there's a whole pile of information, a trial about eating disorder research, about the complaints, about the responses, about people's personal experience with developing an eating disorder from doing teenage dieting. So I really want everyone in the world to see this fast track information website because you know what, knowledge is power. The more we know about this, the more people can develop true informed consent. One of the developments that has emerged in the last week or so is the release of another study from the fast track trial researchers. This time it's a meta-analysis which has gathered together data from 29 different studies which is claiming or concluding that uh, hospital, well, that they, what they're saying is that weight loss dieting in the adolescence is not dangerous if it's done by trained health professionals in hospital-based programs. So as you can imagine, <laughs> I have been feverishly looking at that meta-analysis and in the future I will be bringing you updates and you know I'm going to dive under that hood and dive into the data and let you know again if there's a difference between the data and the conclusions because spoiler alert they're doing it again. Informed consent is everything and instead of doing what the Butterfly Foundation and ANZED asked them to do and put up some clear information on the website to parents about the risk of developing an eating disorder from teenage dieting. The fast track researchers have only agreed to put up a copy of their pilot study article and the meta-analysis article on their website. And I guess this is serving as some kind of proxy for informed consent. Now, as, as I've just spent the last hour or so telling you guys about, it's not easy to read a scientific study. And if instead of, you know, really easy to read plain English informed consent risk information, if parents are instead being directed to read very dense academic articles and trying to extract information about risk, which is not readily apparent even to experts, I just don't think that's good enough. So I'm really concerned by this development and heartened that we have the Fast Track Trial website there because that is where we get our plain English informed consent, letting parents know what's the likelihood of weight loss, what's the risks involved in weight cycling, because let's face it, that's what this whole project is introducing kids to, a life of weight cycling and a life of disordered eating and hopefully, well, not hopefully, but possibly and horrendously an eating disorder so please tell everyone that you know about the fasttracktrial.com.au website and get this information out there so thank you to Ruth Leach for her tenacity and bravery and just general awesomeness I will give you some uh, information on how to contact Ruth and get involved in her peer-to-peer -peer support network which is worldwide and amazing for parents so that will be in the show notes and I just want to say thank you again for listening and for caring about this episode and this whole topic it's just been just fabulous to have so much support about the fast track trial because it goes bigger than just one research investigation this is about the whole direction of uh 
where we're going with eating disorders and where we're going with the treatment of people in larger bodies, which, you know, is at the heart of so much injustice in the world right now. So thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate you and I can't wait to see you again or talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Look after yourselves and until I talk to you again, trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture, untrap from the crap. 